it's really like online real estate where, you know, maybe this isn't as important in, in physical real estate, but when you're buying like these online businesses and these online startups, you know, really building a good relationship with the seller is extremely important. So I always recommend as founders to, you know, speak with buyers, get to know them, be aligned on what's going to happen post acquisition. Are you going to leave right away? Do you want to stay in the business? Are you looking to sell fast? Why are you looking to sell? That's probably the top of my list. Like really understanding why you're looking to sell. Cause that's my first question. Every time I look at a business, that's, that's probably my, my top three is just have a good business. Um, have your books in order. And then just be, you know, extremely honest with questions regarding your business and understanding the acquisition process. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would subscribe on Apple or Spotify or whatever platform you're listening on. And if on Apple, if you would leave a rating and review, it would mean a lot. And last but not least, you can check out all these episodes on YouTube. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Fort. I have Andrew Gazdecki with me today, who is the founder of MicroAcquire. We talk a lot today about the mission that MicroAcquire is on which is basically creating a marketplace where founders can go and easily sell their business. Um, Andrew is a huge proponent of bootstrapping your business and owning a lot of your business and creating a profitable business. We talk a lot about that. We talk about how startups are being valued, who's buying them and why, how to perform due diligence on these things, how they're being financed. We talk about why only 1% of businesses should really take VC funding and others should look for other routes and a lot more. So thank you so much for continuing to join me on this journey. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Andrew, welcome to the show. Chris, thanks for having me. I um, I got that tweet for me yesterday and was uh, I was laughing at some of the questions and um, also saw some good ones. So excited to, excited to be on here. I'm pumped, man. I've been a fan. I love what you're building, and I'm excited to talk about it. Before we talk about MicroAcquire, which is your current venture, you just let's do a little background on uh, the couple companies you had before that you sold successfully, and kind of what that was like, and what led into MicroAcquire. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I always say I've been an entrepreneur my whole life. Um, and that kind of can blend into like more of like, um, I've, I've, I've vocalized this a few times. Um, you know, I, I grew up, you know, uh, let's just say with not a lot of means, um, grew up also without a father. Um, so entrepreneurship for me was like a survival mechanism. Like I had to go hustle. I had to learn how to sell. Um, so that's where everything started for me and um i got really really lucky though because i really enjoyed it like business became kind of my sport like i knew from a very early age that you know like some people are like i want to be like tom brady and be like the nfl i was like i want to be the ceo of a startup like that would be cool and everyone's like what why you want to get a job already i'm like that's awesome so 
that was me growing up. Um, I've started multiple businesses. Um, most of them are in the graveyard. Um, so just, you know, learning as I went, um, you know, building businesses in high school in college, I would, um, I had a rule where I would launch a new business every summer when I had time. And obviously in a summer, like you can't build a substantial business, but it was just basically a learn. And so, um, in my junior year of Chico State, where I graduated with um, a 2.07 GPA, the lowest graduating GPA in school history. I'm kind of proud of that. Um, and the 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 backstory on that's kind of funny. But um, uh, I'll, let me backtrack to the the first coming and tell you this story first. So um, I went a fifth year at, at Chico State to focus on um, business apps, uh, and I minored in entrepreneurship. And I failed every class. Like I, I came first day and told the teacher, "Hey, nothing personal, but I'm I just took out like financial aid so I don't have to get a job to work on this business I started. So I'm not going to show up to any classes. Um, here's my number if you ever want me to drop in." Um, and he loved it. He would, uh, and multiple teachers like uh, I, I met my first um, angel investor who I was in his class and I didn't show up. Um, so anyways, I started a company called Phone Freelancer. It was just a simple job board. Um, I think this is important to note for non-technical developers. I'm not technical. I don't know how to code. Um, so I bought this script and I loaded it up onto a server one winter break and then the job board was basically connecting um, iPhone developers with businesses. And this was before the Android. BlackBerry didn't have a good app ecosystem. And people were paying like $50,000 for these like really simple applications. And so I started seeing a pattern where people, specifically luxury restaurants and hotels, they were asking for loads program, push notifications, menu, um, you know, it's very simple functionality. So I thought, okay, there's all these do-yourself website builders out there. Why don't I um, build like a do-yourself app builder for businesses? So I sold the job board for, I believe it was like 50,000, but sometimes I say a hundred, I don't know. It was, it was. It felt like a trillion dollars. Like literally it was it was like hit the bars, drinks on me. Like I bought like this dumb expensive watch that everybody liked. Um it was like a three hundred dollar watch. It's probably less than the one you're wearing. It was the Nixon uh fifty one thirty, if anyone's familiar with that. That was that was cool back in the day. Um and uh, I used that as seed funding for a company called Business Apps, which was essentially a no-code um, app builder for small businesses. We focused specifically on native iOS apps, native Android apps, and also progressive web apps. Um, ran that company for about eight years, grew to over $10 million in revenue. Um, we had over 100 employees, which is kind of crazy. And this is when you could hire sales reps for 50 k um, you can't do that now. Um, half the company was remote, half the company was in house, um, but profitable from like day one. It was literally a rocket ship. I was like 22, 
had no idea what I was doing, just right place, right time, got super lucky with the timing of the iPhone, like literally just came out and I'm surrounded by all these, you know, my friends have iPhones and all of these bars and restaurants trying to connect with this demographic. And it was a perfect like incubator or area to, you know, launch this type of business. So, um, you know, the, the beginnings were pretty, um, humble. Like I just didn't want to get a job. My goal was literally to get 50 clients. So I didn't have to get a job that literally was the goal. Um, and then it slowly turned into, you know, more of a drag and drop do yourself automated platform. Um, we ended up creating more mobile apps than any other company in the world. To my knowledge, um, Apple, publishes how many they'll state how many apps um are approved in the app store every quarter or something like that and then we would look at the number of apps that we submitted and we do the math and we were submitting about five percent of all iphone apps into the app store um can't say all of them were good though um we, we made some funny ones we made some for like uh have you heard of like fetty wap he's like rapper yeah, we made one for him uh uh, Jordan Belfort, uh, uh, Billy Ray Cyrus, um, this one NFL kicker that was super funny. Um, I mean, they were good abs, but it was just, just giving you the breadth of, and then, uh, the most popular category was restaurant and hospitality and, um, gyms, fitness, anything related to loyalty, um, and just basically, uh, customer engagement. So, uh, yeah, grew that for about eight years. Um, kind of got tapped out um, yeah, around the eight-year mark. Figured I, you know, my previous jobs were at Sears. I worked at Baskin Robbins, Togo's, um, movie theater. Uh, I was a graphic designer. Been fi- I was fired from all of those jobs, too. So um, I, I was just, you know, tired looking for something new. I learned so much and I had such a great experience. Um, and long story short there is I just got an offer I couldn't refuse and I was tired and I had a, I, I raised a hundred thousand for the business. So when you raise capital, you have a fiduciary duty to return that capital. Um, so basically got the offer and exited the business at 29. Yeah, I'm assuming on a hundred thousand raise and ten million in revenue, you were able to at least return the, at least the initial hundred thousand. I won't ask what else you returned, but at least a hundred thousand. I'll I'll talk about that. Um, Christian Friedland, I believe he made like one point two million. Um, I can't remember the valuation, but at close, I owned um like around eighty four percent of the business. Um, I told you I wouldn't tell you the price, but I'll give you kind of like ballpark numbers. Um, low eight figures, all cash transaction, benefited from QSBS. Um, and that's only up to the first 10 million. Um, I also got a blank $500,000 check from ESW Capital to just like it was just to me. Um, I think it was for, I don't know what the purpose of it was, but um, divvy it that I didn't take a dollar from that, divvy that out to my whole team. Um, so it was a good win all around. Um, you know, investors were happy, team was happy. Our team was kind of sad in a way because it was like I, I describe it as like the end of college. 
because we all knew the business was changing, the culture was going to change. Like I negotiated some pretty stern terms where um, I wanted a stock purchase. Um, we had two million cash on hand, so I negotiated them to purchase that cash. Um, and the purpose behind that is, um, I'm sure you, I'm sure you know this, but when you acquire a business and has cash in it, and you uh, dividend it out to uh, shareholders, you're taxed at forty percent. But since we added onto the purchase price um, in the stock sale, um, we were taxed um, at twelve, thirteen percent state. Um, what else was fun? Uh, and then a 90 day, uh, transition period. So I was out of the business in 90 days. So it was basically like, Hey, I'm tired. And then fair offer. And then how long did the transaction take? 30 days. And I was actually going through it. Um, uh, during my wedding too, we, I, I got married in uh Cancun. We basically had like, uh, a, a week long vacation type destination wedding it was kind of ridiculous it was like a giant pool party like a vegas style pool party and then we had a wedding in the middle um it it, it was epic um and uh yeah i was doing due diligence requests like during when i was in cancun um but luckily um i was so removed from the business in terms of you know daily operations that um you know really just my team kind of took care of all the requests like all the, the requests were technical, um, mainly financial. So my CFO handled the majority of that. Um, questions around like customer service, um, support tickets, response times, um, how frequent are escalations, how does it work? Like we basically had to document the entire business, but um, it was, it wasn't bad. It was 30 days. Maybe, maybe, maybe a little, maybe a little bit longer. Um, this was three years ago. So let's just say 60 days, but it wasn't like a six months drawn out negotiated. Um, like what's awesome about ESW Capital is um, once they give you a number, like they stick to that. And then you just go through due diligence and then like you, there's no surprises. And so that's what I really respected about them. Um yeah, I'd say like 45 days, but we worked our asses off. I'd say we put, I don't know. It, it, it wasn't fun, but the reward was worth it. And one of my favorite quotes from my investor, um, one of my mentors, he was telling me, you know, every every hour that you're working on this, you're getting paid like, like just do the math. You're getting paid a lot. So just keep going. Yeah, yeah. Um, I like that. Yeah. All right, I'm going to ask you about QSBS, but I'm going to ask that in the micro acquire part of the conversation. So you sell the business. I don't know if you took some time off or you already had the idea, but now you are uh, the founder of micro acquire, which again, I've been really enjoying following. So first question, what is micro acquire and what are you looking to achieve? Can we actually, um, can I answer your second, like what I do after I um, sold business apps? You can do whatever you want. Anything I want. All right. So I actually, I started another company. Um, and this is something I'd recommend entrepreneurs not to do. I actually regret starting this business a little bit. Um, we still pulled out a win from it. But uh, what we were trying to do was speed up um, transaction times on the Ethereum blockchain. So it was a very technical project. 
Um, our first application for the use of basically instant transactions on um, the Ethereum blockchain was a think of it like a decentralized Coinbase. Is a very so basically I sold the business and I was like I'm gonna build something bigger now. Um, what I should have done is I should have traveled the world. I should have taken some time off. I should have chilled out a little bit. Um, but when you're, I guess for me personally, you know, I had embodied like being CEO, like so much as like my personality. Um, I immediately need to start another company. Um, I no longer feel like that, but, um, one of my CEO coaches kind of pointed that out and I was like that. Yeah, that's actually why I rushed into that business. I, I actually started that business during due diligence. So. I was I was actually starting a business and doing due diligence during my wedding. Um, so that's just to give you an idea of like, um, you know, that's an entrepreneur. Yeah, I just I, I love startups almost like a video game. It's my favorite, favorite game to play. And um, so the story with that business, um, SEC came out with some regulations that basically required us to raise a substantial amount of money, basically to become like a stock market um like in terms of approval and so we pivoted the business towards um basically like a white label platform where if you had the regulatory compliance you can launch it um we ended up and that was to position it for exit because we, we didn't want to raise more capital um and so we found one person really interested in the technology sold the business and um negotiate a 30-day transition with that one. That one was quick. Um, but that was more of a single, I would say. Good good, good outcome for a year's work. But I think my, my regret there was just not taking time and resting and just enjoying life and like really trying to figure out like, um, you know, who I was outside of business apps. Because again, I went straight from college, you know, like a 21-year-old, all the way up to like, I grew up in this business as the lead, like as all my friends are getting like roles as like sales development reps or customer service. I'm like hiring these people in Groves. And so it was just a weird experience. Um, so that happened. Um, now I'm on microfire. You want to talk about that? Yeah, I can relate to you. I started buying real estate when I was 17 and I've never stopped. I didn't, Real estate's not really a business that you sell, so I, I'm I feel you there. Um, yeah, let's talk about microacquire. Uh, what uh what are you doing with it, and what are you trying to achieve? Um, really, we're just trying to make acquisitions as easy as possible for entrepreneurs. Um, I believe right now the acquisition market is fragmented, confusing, difficult, favors buyers. Um, poor solutions, huge market, important problem. Um, investment banking is just an industry ripe for disruption. Um, these people spend two months on a presentation. Um, and I think we can do, you know, a lot of good by in, in two ways. One, giving founders a way to sell their business without commissions. So no fees, no commissions, completely free. But then, um, we're also working on ways to work with investment bankers because we've also heard from a lot of business brokers, investment bankers, because um, the narrative around microcar um, has really been no brokers, no middlemen. 
Um, but as we look to move up in market, because we think like at its core, MicroQuire is basically the largest database of people that acquire software companies. Um, and they'll do 100 million acquisitions if they're presented. So to help move up market, um, we're basically building a directory that involves, you know, investment bankers, brokers, M&A advisors, attorneys, everyone involved in um, acquisitions. More as like a consolidation play. And um, the idea behind that is uh, really just from my personal experience. Like when I sold business apps, the law firm we used was just like a random referral from, um, again, my angel. He's like, hey, this law firm is great. I'm like, okay, cool. Um, I had light advice from a friend that was an investment banker. Um, didn't I had a buyer in place. So we we feel that we have um, the opportunity to basically um, you know, bring sellers and buyers together together and then also provide tooling and then advisory for stars depending on on the deal size. All right, nothing in this world is free. So how do you make money? So right now we make money by charging buyers access to the deals on MicroQuire. So are you are you a car are you a car person, Chris? No. But pretend I am. What do you what, what do you like? Oh, oh let's use real estate. Um I, I'm I'm boring I'm boring and I don't want to give you a cliche answer. I, I just buy real estate if I have extra cash around. I don't that's that's kind of my thing. <laughs> I I always describe it as a, a Ferrari shop where you you can look at the cars, but if you want to know the car's mileage, who the previous owner is, how to get a hold of them, you have to pay for that access. So, and, um, you know, the Chris Powers world, it's going to be a bunch of homes, but you have no idea who the owner is. And you don't know if the roofing needs fixing or, you know, stuff like that. And so you pay for that access. And so um, that will only get us so far in terms of building um, a a substantial business um not necessarily the goal but um the next layer that we're going to add on in terms of revenue is going to be the MA marketplace we're working on a ton of different partnerships for financing um the ability to create svbs to raise funds from other investors to inquire companies um we also have a really badass uh valuation tool coming out but the general idea is if you're a business broker or you're an M&A advisor, you generally spend about 50% of your time on sales and marketing. And we have thousands of startups on MicroQuare that could probably use their advisory. And so our model as of now, and this, this could change because we haven't released the directory, we're going to allow um, business brokers um, to charge a commission, charge a fixed rate, whatever they feel comfortable with, depending on uh, the scope of working with the entrepreneur. And then we're going to take a referral from um, their compensation. So think of like Upwork or like Yelp for like M&A. So you hear about all these brokers and these investment bankers and like who's good, who's specific. If I'm selling like in business apps, this case, um, I would love to have hired someone that had connections in GoDaddy, J2 Global, or, you know, Wix or something like that. Um, so we're going to build that directory where um, we bring trust and transparency into this market where it's all just kind of referral-based. 
Um, and when you can have real kind of understandings of what uh, these individuals and advisors focus on, what's their expertise, what deal sizes they specialize in, um, all that fun stuff. This is, you know, a hot topic, I think, about around microacquire, but I want to talk about buyers and sellers. Uh, maybe we'll talk first about sellers. What are the range of kind of sellers that you're seeing, maybe company size wise? And, um, you know, who are the, who's the typical seller right now uh, on the platform? Definitely bootstrap startups. Yep. If you haven't noticed from, you know, my content and that those are, those are my people. Yeah. Those, those are my people. Um, I, I believe entrepreneurship or excuse me, venture capital makes zero sense for 99% of entrepreneurs. And, um, I think I told you this before the podcast. Um, I talk about bootstrapping so much because I lived it and it changed my life. And, I said no to a ton of VCs and I had a great outcome and um, I didn't build the next, the biggest Google, but um, you know, I, I had a, I, I would go as far as saying, I think I built the funnest company. Um, we had, we had a blast building that company, but um, in terms of the sellers, yeah, most of them are bootstrapped. Um, revenue ranges from, you know, as low as 10 K sometimes, so we manually approve each listing. So I'll look through every single listing. Um, and we look at the website, we look at, you know, the metrics. And then from there, we have um, basically an onboarding process. And 90% uh, are bootstrapped. And then they sell for, you know, two, three, four, five million dollars. Largest transaction was uh, eight, nine million dollars. We have not broken eight figures yet. Um, so it's, it's a good, good mix of, um, you know, just really healthy bootstrap businesses. And when they sell for sub $10 million it's win, but, um, we do work with some venture back companies, but there's usually a lot of tears when that happens because it's a situation of, Hey, we raised a bunch of money. It's not working out. Can we just sell this thing and get like a press article? Um, which we're also happy to help with um, as well. Um, like one recent example would be there was a company that was acquired by LinkedIn. They were literally just looking to sell the IP for whatever anyone would pay. Um, uh, you know, great outcome. Um, not ideal, not probably what they were shooting for, but um, that's kind of the 90-10 the, the, the is, you know, 90% bootstrap, profitable, 10% venture back. Is it is it like eBay where, you know, you put the the business on with maybe a reserve price and it's like a thirty day kind of auction? Or is this does the seller have to put the price they want, or do they leave it blank and just see what happens at the end of thirty days? How does how do you get to a, a number? Yeah, so our our goal is to build the world's most founder friendly marketplace in the world. So again, we're not building this for buyers. So. We're built like as an entrepreneur, I'm building this in a way that really empowers founders to maximize their exits. I'm not building this for buyers to get really good, cheap deals. That's not what I'm trying to do with Microfire. And I, I think that's a big shift in the market, too, that people don't understand is, um, you know, the highest quality companies don't want to sell for peanuts. Um, 
And so we help empower entrepreneurs to understand the acquisition process, how it works. Um, but in terms of our involvement, um, you list on MicroQuire, um, most deals do close within like a 90 day period. Um, but some just sit on there for months. Like they are growing, like they're solid companies. They are in no rush to sell and their, their price is high. Um, but it's, it's valid. Um, some buyers might say, oh, like TTM profit times four is the market multiple. But when you have a growing SaaS company, that's probably not the best way. Maybe if it's flat. Um, so we let founders dictate the price. We let founders um, state open offers and not dictate the price. Um, there's no auctions. It's also entirely private. And again, free. Um, we create a, a short sim for them. If they're open to that, we have a type form that we send them. Um, so we do everything we can to position the founder with just educational resources, um, making sure their startup profile listing looks good and is appealing to buyers. And um, yeah, we're just doing everything we can to support entrepreneurs. Yeah. Maybe one more question on sellers. We'll talk more about them in a little bit, but do they have to be kind of like as, as part of your vetting process, they're a willing seller, like they actually want to sell and not just post their business and get told how sexy they are for a few months and then never sell? That's a really good question. So that one's hard to flesh out. So like the easiest way that we flesh that out is we have a section that says, why are you selling? So we'll read that. And if we see stuff like, hey, just checking out the market, we won't list that. If it's, hey, looking to raise 30% like as an investment, we won't list that. Um, but if it's like, hey, I've taken this business as far as I can go, um, looking to hand this business off to someone who could possibly take it farther, um, those are businesses that we can list. Um, but sometimes it changes too. Sometimes founders, we, we do see like founders um, they'll list, they'll get, you know, a lot of interest from buyers and they'll increase their price. And then they start going towards like, you know, I'm, I'm going to hold out until maybe a, more of a strategic buyer comes along. We can talk about the types of buyers in microquare because it's very, very fascinating. Um, but um, yeah, so we don't, we, we do our best to ensure because that's a waste of everyone's time it's a waste of our time instead of the set of profile complete waste of time for the buyers um and frankly it's a waste of time for the seller to even be doing that so we don't support that yeah well that was my next question who are, what is the kind of range of types of buyers uh that you've seen come onto the platform and, and transact so we were actually trying to put together how much assets under management does like how, like how much what is the total net like worth of all the users on microware and we we couldn't even get to a number that i feel comfortable sharing um because it was it was well into the, the hundreds of billions of dollars so uh the largest private equity firms um the largest vc backed companies some public companies um uh, some companies have like 10 corp dev licenses. Um, some PE firms say same thing, five associates with um, 
microcredit premium buyer licenses. We also see interesting stuff like venture capital firms acquiring companies, which is very, I never thought I'd see that. Um, also, um, even bootstrap startups buying other bootstrap startups, which is really cool. Um, and then obviously with, you know, 100,000 plus buyers, we do see a lot of individual buyers. Um, these are usually like the tire kickers. These are usually the ones that, you know, not not all the time, but the majority of the time, they're more interested in learning about how to buy a business rather than being serious about buying a business or having the funds to buy a business. Um, but most of the acquisitions we see are usually B2B rather than B2C. What'd you, what'd you mean by the a company with 10 corp dev licenses? What does that mean? So like a PE firm, like a giant PE firm, um, they've signed up 10 people with a microcredit premium account so they can go through the listings and basically, you know, curate their deal flow, have conversations with potential sellers, um, which is really cool. So it's like a PE firm with, you know, 200 employees and they have 10 people that have paid licenses in the microcredit. And that's also the same with startups too. So whole corp dev teams on um, startups as well. It's it's not frequent, but um, there's about a dozen different PE firms or start like public companies that have um, essentially like their full corp dev team inside Microware. Have you had any first time buyers? Maybe just like the individual that quit his corporate job and looked at this as a way to get into entrepreneurship. Yeah, and that that's, you know, probably one of my favorite parts, too, because it almost creates like a new form of entrepreneurship um, where you could be a VP of sales at a company, you can be a VP of marketing at a company, and you want to, you know, I guess put it this way, when you when you buy a company on microcore, what you're really buying is product market fit. You're buying a company that has, you know, some traction, some, you know, paying customers. There's something there. It's been proven out, the product works. And so there's two types of people that we're dealing with here. As a seller, you know, a lot of the times these are builders. These are people that love to build companies. That's what they love to do. Maybe they want to build a billion dollar company and this company that they're working with isn't on that trajectory, so they want to sell it. Maybe it's a really healthy company and they just want to sell it. And so when they sell to, um, you know, an individual entrepreneur, um, it allows that person who may not be that technical to, you know, kind of step in and breathe new energy into that business and then turn it into like, and I've seen this happen where it turns into like a millionaire business, like, Starts at 300K, triples the business to a million, and then that's their business now. And it's awesome. Yep. Can you describe kind of on the range of values what like a $10,000 a year revenue business looks like versus on the higher end, maybe the $8 million uh, uh, as far as like what they're doing? And then like I'm assuming in a 10,000 person business, you're probably just like selling some code to somebody else with no employees attached to it versus an $8 million company, you might be buying a team and what type of business that is. Yeah, definitely. So let's just call it like sub 50K in revenue is really like a proof of concept business. Like there's enough there to work with, but 
they're extremely hard to value because what do you value? You can't like, let's say it's doing, you know, it's a great product. It's in a big market. There's a lot of potential there, but the founders are technical and they'd rather move on to something else. Like, how do you price that IP? So it almost, you know, it's really up to the buyer to kind of determine what is it worth to you? Like, for example, if it's a great product that your agency can sell to 10,000 customers that you have, um, it's probably going to be worth more to you than another individual. Um, so, you know, we don't have a perfect way of valuing those companies. I, I don't, but I have seen companies doing 10K in annual recurring revenue sell for 30X, um, which is wild to me. Um, but the but the products are so good they fill product gaps within other companies. Um, and then sometimes a team comes along. It, it it depends on the situation. And then yeah, on the upper end, um, you know, with more with larger deals, um, there's more complexity. So there's definitely, you know, team due diligence. There's um, you know, just everything that I went through in terms of selling my business. Where, you know, how does what is the technical architecture? Um, you know, what's your, give me like a 36 month, uh, P and L, um, all audited, you know, uh, financial statements, um, you know, a number of other things. And then it's a more delicate handover too, because you're, you know, handing this over to another owner and the previous owner is usually leaving sometimes staying. Um, but in terms of those valuations, those valuations are usually pretty more because you have something to anchor it on. So and let's say a business is valued at eight million, you know, maybe it's doing, you know, let's call it two and a half million, three million in revenue. So you're giving it a multiple of like three. Um, or maybe it's, you know, a four million dollar company doing two million in profits, so you're doing, you know, profit times four. Um, you know, you have you have multiples that you can justify but on the lower end it's like what is it worth to you um and those are my fun those i think those are the funnest ones because they have so much potential um and it, it just needs someone who's like excited about the business and uh it it, it really is probably my my favorite part of the business is when someone who's completely over what they built and someone buys it and they're super excited about it. And they're like, they think it's the coolest like product ever. Um, you know, it's almost like keeping startups alive in a way. For sure. And I, and I, and I, and I love startups. So the more we keep it alive, the better. This is a selfish question. Cause I know nothing about buying an online business, but if I wanted to buy one, are y'all providing resources for buyers to learn or if, like how can people learn how to buy one of these if they've never done it before? And, uh, yeah. How are people learning? Yeah. Good question. So I've created a full course on acquisitions, everything from due diligence, legal, how to attract more offers. It's more positioned for founders, but it's also relevant for buyers to go through as you kind of get into the perspective head of an entrepreneur rather than from buyer standpoint. Because um, there's content everywhere on, you know, how to buy online businesses from other brokerage. So we went the opposite direction. We were like, let's empower entrepreneurs on how to, you know, properly understand um, 
again, like what is due diligence? Like what are the legal steps? Um, what else? Like what, what type of financing makes sense? What are deal structures? Um, so if you go to like resources on microcore.com, there's a ton of resources available that kind of covers almost everything like red flags look out for, um, like no offense to you, Chris, but, uh, an article you might love reading is how to transfer uh, software assets. Like how do you transfer God. them over? Um, it's 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 a lot more difficult than just handing over keys. Um, and I'm sure. Don't you just like download what, it on a zip drive and then just hand the zip drive to the person and that's it? That's what we're gonna build. Yeah, just <laughs> you know, start start up on a stick. You know. Um, yeah. <laughs> No, it's it's much more complex. And depending on the software, too, you're talking about moving servers, you're talking about, um, I mean, it, it it depends on, like, if it, most private equity firms usually will run companies, um, you know, based in, with a vertical stack. So what I mean by that is they'll, they'll pull everything into their own, you know, Amazon Web Services environment. And so they're moving all this stuff. It's just very complex. Um, so there's there's a good way to do that, and then also a bad way to do that. And we outline, you know, how to smooth out that transition as it goes down. Yep. This is your chance to talk directly to sellers because there's probably going to be millions of people listening to this episode that are ready to sell an online business. But what are you things? Me, you, what are you, you got? You got millions of listeners? No. <laughs> I wish yeah, one you, day Chris, maybe. Yes, well, you do. You're the man. Everybody needs that first guess that that pushes them over the edge, and I think that this is it. So this will this will get me closer. Hey, I, I want to get this on on record before we start recording. I I was telling Chris, I was like, Chris, you're a badass, dude. Like this guy buys like airports and stuff, like bigger than I've ever seen in my life, and then he's also supporting like you know young tech entrepreneurs. Um, Huge fan. I'm like you, man. I'm a huge fan. It goes both ways. What are like the big items that a seller should have done before coming to you? Like, hey, get audited financials or hey, you know, already outline your business processes. What makes it easy for a seller to kind of sell quick as opposed to coming to you and then realizing they got to go back for 90 days and get their ducks in a row before they come back to sell? Easy. I would say... Number one, having a good business. That's just just like you, when you're looking at real estate. They can have, you know, the best everything, but if it's a bad piece of real estate, I'm assuming you're going to pass. The same goes for a software company. Like, you want to focus on growing. Like, never stop focus on improving and growing your business. Um, aside from that, like, yeah, like a clean P&L that outlines, you know, your expenses. Um, how are you generating revenue? What is your growth rate? Um, also being really, you know, open with buyers about being educated about acquisitions, like what is a fair valuation? Um, I would recommend to founders like having an evaluation that you can justify rather than just, Hey, I'm going to take this number and multiply by 50 and see what happens. Like having a conversation where you can say, Hey, we think our business is worth X amount because of this, 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 and this. Rather than just like when I sold business apps, our valuation was down. We even they even sent us like a couple, couple pennies. Like, it was literally like down, like it was a math multiple. Um, so I recommend that. Um, and then also, 
um, just building a good relationship with a buyer. Um, again, I guess what I, what I, analogies and uh, my team always makes fun of me for my analogies, but um, you know, it's really like online real estate where you know maybe this isn't as important in in physical real estate, but when you're buying like these online businesses and these online startups, you know really building a good relationship with the seller is extremely important. So I always recommend um, as founders to, you know, speak with buyers, get to know them, um, be aligned on what's going to happen post acquisition. Are you going to leave right away? Um, do you want to stay in the business? Um, are you looking to sell fast? Um, what? Why are you looking to sell? That's probably the top of my list, like really understanding why you're looking to sell. Because that's my first question every time I look at a business. Um, that's, that's probably my, my top three is just have a good business, um, have your books in order. Um, and then just be, you know, extremely honest with, um, you know, questions regarding your business and understanding the acquisition process. But on like a listing, if, if when I was signing up, I was vocal to you or your team and just said, you know, I'm looking to leave the business post-sale. Is that on the listing that buyers can already see, or does that just come up in conversation once they've kind of engaged and shown interest, or both? So on some, it's definitely listed, but the majority of the time, that's discussed between the buyers because some buyers want the founder to leave, or, or they're very open to the founder staying. Like they prefer them to leave, or they prefer them to stay. It just depends on the buyer. And so that's why I always recommend, you know, when you go on microacquire, you get so many um, reach outs from, you know, potential buyers, just hopping on the phone and just kind of getting on the same page of, you know, let's answer some questions. Let's get to know each other. Um, you know, does this seem like a fit? I'm getting aligned on that, but it really depends on the buyer. And that's usually dictated during um, negotiations. But I'd say we probably see like a 50-50 split. In terms of, um, you know, there's usually always some sort of transition period. So, for example, like I recently bought a Shopify app with some friends. Um, it wasn't big; it was like a hundred thousand, uh, do, doing like a hundred thousand years, something like that. Um, and we'd all just pulled in for fun to just acquire something off microacquire. Uh, we did half up front, and then. Uh, the other half after 90 days, just so we knew transition was smooth. Um, just because you never know, the, the founder of the company always knows the company inside and out. And so just having that sort of insurance policy of if the servers crash and they've already had a full payout um, and we have no support, we're kind of left hanging. So, um, you know, they can be short transitions, long transitions, or sometimes no transitions just just depends okay so if i if i list my business and like a buyer reaches out are investment bankers or intermediaries getting involved once the conversation starts or is it kind of an understood agreement that by doing this on micro acquire it's like founder to buyer without all these people in the middle or is that just again transaction by transaction however they want to do it Oh my gosh. The amount of like investment bankers I've banned from like <laughs> if you could name like the top five business brokers or the top five um investment bankers. Um I've also 
other marketplaces um, are all registered premium buyers. Like they're all in there, like watching. Um, some of them are a little brash. Some of them will kind of send messages like, hey, I'm an investment banker. I'd love to run your process. That gets booted immediately. That's against our terms of um, service. Um, but generally, no. Um, you know, usually it's just buyers and sellers communicating. But we do have a page, you know, um, I kind of teased on that Twitter post, like, you know, a little sort of walk. I'm not sure if you saw that. Um, but we're really integrating um, a directory where you can hire um, advisory if that's what you need or you just don't feel comfortable selling on your own. Um, and right now we just have a drop down with just a bunch of names if you just need like quick M&A help. Um, but for the most part, uh, almost all transactions to this point um, have just been buyers and sellers um, negotiating coming terms, which I think is really, really fascinating because it wasn't like that five years ago. Like it was not, it was, it was, if you acquired a company five years ago, like you're, you're a trailblazer. Like you were like, I remember in like, you know, 2013, 2014, when I looked to sell business tabs, we hired an investment bank. Um, and just like the companies we're talking to, just thinking like, this is who does acquisitions. And now it's a completely different game with the amount of private equity firms that have been created. Um, also just wealthy individuals, angel investors, venture capitalists, um, other startups, buying startups, but not public companies. Um, so it's almost like, you know, acquisitions are becoming like a growth lever for other startups and another path of entrepreneurship for, um, people who don't have a company that they're currently running. Do the buyer and seller have to communicate through like a through microacquire, through maybe a chat system, or do they move that offline? And same question for like templates for legal forms and everything. Do they kind of use a standard set that y'all use or they can use whatever they want for the transaction? Yeah, good question. So to be clear, microacquire is 100% not involved in the transaction. Um, the, we do have a chat feature, so you can send and receive documents. You can keep everything contained within microacquire. We do have templated legal docs available as well as recommendations to M&A um, uh, attorneys. Um, but we're not involved. So if they want to take it on the email, cool. If they want to keep in chat, cool. We don't read it. You know, I literally find out about deals closing like when people announce them on like Twitter and stuff like that. Or I'll get an email saying like, hey, I just sold my business for like $4 million. Thanks. Um, we we have mechanics now that uh you know kind of closes the loop. But when I first launched the business, my goal wasn't to make money. I ran the business for free for I think ten months because I just thought it was so fun. And um, now I've you know worked with my team to kind of build in those mechanics so we can gather you know better data around like how many stars are being sold. Um, I mean right now we're seeing about one to two acquisitions close a day. It's and those are only the ones that we know about. Because when you go and um, archive your profile, which means basically take it off the marketplace, um, we give you a set of reasons. And it's, you know, I sold it on microquire, I sold it off market, decided not to sell. Um, a lot of people who say off market will look and we're like, you sold this on microquire. And I don't know if that's, 
that like they think we're gonna come after them like they owe us something um which again microware is entirely free for founders to sell um but it's 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 interesting to see how how quickly um m a is you know kind of come to the forefront of entrepreneurship for sure well i just imagine you know somebody that might have like a two million dollar business that's great and a linkedin could use them for a product and they engage with linkedin and they the seller might send over a template that they have in linkedin's like no we're going to use this 500 page psa and you know, go through like their process. I mean, just that alone could start racking up fees and things. So I'm assuming, uh, you know, they're trying to keep it as cost effective as possible once they start engaging. Yeah, I mean, that's just with any big, I, I call those BDCs, big, dumb, big, dumb companies. Um, there's no getting around. If you got, if you got a legal team at your company, ooh, they're going to work. That's their job. Oh, yeah. They're going to add paragraphs on paragraphs, just add paragraphs. Um, not Nothing against attorneys, it's their job. But um, yeah, LinkedIn's not going to come on and be like, oh, these templates are great. Because the ones that we have are very simple and very straight to the point. Um, and, and they're very customizable, but they would not fly for a public company. No. Uh, first time we sold to an institution, we didn't actually... Well, we've sold to several, but the first time we were ever under contract was with Blackstone. And I've been vocal about this, but, you know, just the getting the PSA written, this army of lawyers from New York, it was a three-week battle. Um, you know, you, you can start racking up costs really quick, depending on who you're selling to, just based on, you know, what they have on their end. I would imagine some PSAs we've worked on from the buyer's perspective cost anywhere from 75 to 125 grand just to get it all drafted up and papered. Again, these are New York law firms or Boston or Chicago, LA. Yeah. That and that's one thing we're looking to solve too cuz that um was around the price I paid um during the business apps acquisition. It was like the biggest document i've ever signed in my life um i also learned that every time you email an attorney they charge you 15 minutes of time and i and i email a lot so i didn't know that until i got the bill i would just say like hey update and then they, they charge me 15 minutes of time and they're billing like a thousand an hour so i'm like okay oh, yeah. that was a waste of money um what well, if the transaction yeah, doesn't we, work no, you're right. It could, and, and you go through all that, and it could fall through. Um, shout out to USW Capital though, because um, they they have a, a really good reputation of keeping their word. So I like my biggest fear was basically um, telling my team we're going to sell the company and get acquired, and then it doesn't go through. Because when that mm -hmm. when I told the team that we're gonna um, we're getting acquired. The questions I got were insane. It was everything from like, am I getting fired? Am I like worth a billion dollars now? And like everything in between. So like I only wanted to work and I didn't want to earn out because um, I knew I'd quit after month three and just get like one tenth of what I sold my company for. Um, so yeah, like, you know, that stuff's like really, 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 really important. And it is not, it's, awful when like you pay that much in legal fees and the deal falls through so another thing we're looking to help with that micro requires streamlining you know some of the symbol docs 
like the asset purchase agreement, the stock purchase agreement. I think those documents are ones that, that'll be a little bit more challenging given, you know, how different certain acquisitions can be depending on if it's a $10 million deal. I think it does support, you know, like bringing in, bring in a professional attorney and do this correctly. Um, but things like an LOI or like an NDA, um, stuff like that, we're looking to kind of, um, you know, standardize that almost like YC did with the safe agreement. Um, if you're familiar with that. Um, so that's, that's something that we're, um, actively working on, uh, right now. All right. How are the buyers financing this? I mean, now that you've given more color, I imagine the bigger firms, you know, just have cash on hand or maybe they just have all the financing in the world, but for kind of a lone ranger or a small company, are they using debt, SBA debt, all cash? How, how are kind of the maybe not as large companies financing this stuff? Another good question. So we see a lot of financing through companies like, uh, we did a partnership with Pipe, which is um, basically a revenue-based financing company where they will essentially take your um, existing 12 months revenue and advance that to let you acquire the company. Um, SBA loans, I haven't seen or heard too much around that. That's something that we're looking to um, you know, because I think those are those are great ways to finance a business, but um, I think it's it's less rare with SaaS and e-commerce, to my knowledge. So we're gonna be looking into that a little bit more. But um, a lot of seller financing, I'll, I'd say the majority of the deals are all cash. Like for example, all cash with a transition, like fifty percent upfront and fifty percent after ninety days. Um. Or sometimes it's like 20% upfront and then seller finance like for a year or something like that. So they take the profit and they finance a business that way. So we see a number of different deal structures, but since we're not involved in the transactions, we have no, we don't really have an idea. Like we don't see the LOI, we don't see the term sheet, not the term sheet, but the asset purchase agreement. And we prefer it that way too. Like I like respecting the privacy of buyers and sellers. Um, like we're trying to democratize this market. We're not trying to, you know, clamp down the rules of like, Hey, this is, these, these are the terms you got to use, man. Um, <laughs> you, you, you gotta give them half of it up front and then half of it later, no deal. Um, but over time we're, we're, I have some really cool ideas where we have recommended deal structures, um, where you kind of can construct a letter of intent based off of common deal structures that uh, depending on the business could be a fit. Um, so that'll be really cool. And that's another thing that we're working on right now. So we're, we're not just, um, you know, to give you the kind of the pitch on microquire is we have a huge, you know, fragmented market. Um, you know, there's lots of boutique brokers, investment bankers, um, Startups in general have no idea how to sell their company. There's tons of articles on how to finance your company, how to grow your company, but there's nothing on educating um, founders how to exit their business. So we're trying to bring that all together in one marketplace where you have tools for legal, for escrow, for financing, for um, we even have like the media arm that we're launching because we want to help, um, you know, shine light on a different narrative. Um, 
for startups that are doing really awesome things and going against the grain of, you know, the typical Silicon Valley narrative that we, that we hear about in the media. Um, kind of a rant, but I hope you enjoyed that, Chris. I enjoyed it. And you're going to talk about that bootstrappers here in a second. Uh, one more question just on uh, sellers. How are you going to crack the code to maybe get $100 million businesses interested in selling? And then if you want to talk at all about it, and the answer might just be you have no plans to do that. Do you plan on bringing on more traditional non kind of online businesses onto the platform as you grow? So the first question, how are we going to drive larger deals? That would be the M&A marketplace. So think of it this way. Imagine if we bring in all of the top investment bankers from Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, um, all the top tier firms, and we bring them a new pool of buyers to bring more exposure to their deals so they can list their deals that they're already working on MicroQuire. We can not only increase supply, but then we can also you know, dramatically increase the deal sizes that we're working with. And then we have all the tooling that they need. We want to make MicroQuire, we want to build MicroQuire to a point where even if you're not looking for buyers, like you're working with a big bank, you're doing, let's say, a $80 million tran- transaction. We want you to take that on to MicroQuire because our tooling is so smooth and it really just is like the standard, just like AngelList is for angel investing. That's, that's kind of the goal. Um, so that's that's the answer to number one. Um, how do we get larger companies? Is If you're doing a life-changing transaction, I'm totally in the camp of get a professional, get, you know, not just for yourself, but for buyers as well. Buyers will take you way more seriously if you're trying to sell your company for ten million or more. If you have a like a professional involved who's, you know, credible, who's experienced in acquisitions, um, so that's that's our our push on market, and it's also just happening naturally as we see more success stories, more case studies, more people talking about microquire and selling businesses for millions of dollars. People are like, oh, this crazy idea actually works, um, and I hear those stories and I think the same thing. I'm like, wow, this works. Cool. Um, second question, uh, Main Street businesses. We've, you know, both of my parents were, were small business owners. Um, so small business and my last business, um, business apps, you know, cater just SMB. And so I love small business. Again, I think it's, it's what, I don't think I, it's what drives the American economy. And I think that's the truest form of entrepreneurship. And so we want to support that. Um, in terms of how we'll do it, I'm not quite sure, but we are keeping an eye on the market. It's just a harder harder deal to close because we have a geography problem. Um, and then usually there's a, a lot more mo- emotional attachment with the business. And so figuring those two out. So right now, the beachhead of tech companies, um, it just makes way more sense because we sell businesses. We see tech businesses sell in seven days and, you know, a laundromat business might take a little. I don't have any experience or knowledge in that field. So um, I'd probably need to hire like a separate team that, you know, really knows Main Street inside and out. But we've talked about it quite a bit because I think there's a lot of disruption and you know, all the places that people go to look for these businesses. There isn't really a de facto, you know, this is the place to go. And um, 
I'll just say this. Um, in, in five years or 10 years, my goal is to completely transform how businesses are bought and sold. We want to make it just extremely easy and smooth for entrepreneurs. Yep. I think it's, it's, it's just obvious. Maybe this is an obvious question. Maybe it's not. But if you're going to list your business for sale on microacquire, you know, sometimes you hire an investment banker as the owner of a company and, you know, maybe even a couple people on your team know, but it's kept pretty private. If you're, if you're going on to list it on an open website, I'm assuming everybody on the team knows they're up for sale. Uh, if not, they're like one text no. message away from knowing. No, no. So listings are completely private. So if you go through the marketplace, this is where my uh, my house analogy was trying to come through. Um, you have no idea what. So you'll see the cars, but you don't know what kind of car it is, who owns it. Um, you have to request that information and it has to be approved by the seller. So the workflow is I list my company and then you'll read something like perfect company for Chris Powers. It's going to help grow his real estate empire. Um, or maybe it's something, you know, um, helps you, helps your tenants pay you in Bitcoin. I saw, yeah. I saw that tweet. I saw that tweet and I liked it. Um, and that's all you know. You just know what problem the company is solving and top level revenues like TTM revenue, trailing 12 months revenue, trailing 12 months profit, last month's revenue, main competitors. So you can kind of get a feel of like what type of business is this tech stack? Um, reason for selling? Um, is it finance, bootstraps? Um, and then from there, if you want more information, you're you send a request like, Hey, I'm Chris. Um, I'm in real estate and I've been thinking about adding Bitcoin for my tenants. I'd love to learn more. And then from there, that request is sent to the seller. They look you up on LinkedIn. They see that you're a really cool guy and they approve your, your request. So it's not like an open marketplace. Like that's why I built it privately because yeah, if you list it publicly you're getting am i getting fired to my am i a billionaire questions and it's trust me it's a founder it was like the i literally had people storming and like can we chat can we chat can we chat and i didn't have all the answers so um privacy is paramount um at, at microquare and i think that's how startups are typically sold is you hire an investment bank um it's only shared very exclusively with you know a handful of people and we've kind of just, you know, productized that service um, into a marketplace. Yep. All right. You're starting a, a content publication. We can talk about your uh, recent scuttlebutt with TechCrunch, but you are, you're launching Bootstrappers, which is basically content that celebrates the bootstrapper. Um, how did that all come about? What are you going to do with that? And what's wrong with TechCrunch? Yeah. Um, well, I'll start with, with TechCrunch. Um, I mean, really just started off with, so with my first company, Business Apps, um, we were bootstrapped and, you know, they wrote about us like a dozen times. Um, really good, you know, company building stories. Um, and they also kind of inspired me to go and try and build tech startups because you, a decade ago, you would read stories like these two people, they hadn't raised money. They're just working on like this app. Like true story, how I thought about business apps was I read an article of another app builder 
that was focusing on blogs and um, uh, podcasts. And I was like, that should be towards businesses, but they have they hadn't raised any funding, so it was just like these really cool company building stories. And so, you know, I just kind of I, I it all started with someone had tweeted something like, "Hey, if you're bootstrapping a startup and you're not getting a lot of media attention, um, you know, um, let's give you a shout out." And I just retweeted that. Like, I wasn't like trying to start beef. Um, cause I love, I love, I love TechCrunch. Like I- I'm not as much as a reader anymore, but I was very vocal with my opinions. I said, all they write about is funding rounds. They don't write about bootstrap startups anymore. Um, and that's fine. It's their publication. Um, but I think it's a really, really large and really, really, um, uh, impactful audience doing a lot of really amazing things. And those are the stories I want to hear. And so I'm just making the publication that I want to read every day because I, I miss those stories. I want to hear about the struggles. I want to hear about like something that's relatable to me. And I, I guess our, and it's, this sounds so cheesy, but like, you know, we want to inspire and like motivate entrepreneurs. We want to make people read these articles and say like, Hey, I can do this. Like, you know, when you read an article that says a company just raised $500 million, like that's so like the Silicon Valley is so tiny, like, and there's so many people outside of that tiny, 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 tiny bubble. And those are the people that we're trying to speak to and inspire. Um, and so that, and really how bootstrapper started was, um, someone at TechCrunch, again, I just gave candid feedback, just said, Hey, you guys don't write about bootstrap startups. And someone said, uh, that's not true. And I said, uh, it is true. Um, but maybe I'm wrong. Like direct quote, maybe I'm wrong. Um, what's the percentage of bootstrap startups you've written about in the last year? And then the dude blocked me. Um, so just a little, um, a little, a little food fight. Um, and then, uh, and then, and then we, then we threw some darts. I, I, I said they were like that dude in high school that was cool ten years ago and just tells you the same story over and over. So it got a little ticky tacky for a minute. Um, but uh, long story short. Um, you know, we're hoping to bring back, you know, stories that, you know, are for people that are just starting out. Like, how do you, how do you get off the ground? You know, how did this other person build this $2 million business? Um, rather than how did this person convince a bunch of investors to value their company out of billion and now they're a unicorn and they get a, 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 unicorn horse image on their website. It's the weirdest thing. Um, And that's just not my style of entrepreneurship. I think, you know, I think what's happened in tech today is um, there's just this narrative of people feeling like they need to build a billion dollar company, be in these, you know, top tier press publications, raise a bunch of money to be successful. And that's, like that couldn't be farther from the truth. Um, so I, all I'm trying to do is just shine light on, and it pisses people off too. Like some people are like, no, F that like VC like does all this stuff. And it's like, I agree with that too. But um, here's, you know, a more realistic path for like, again, like the 99% of other entrepreneurs where venture capital doesn't make sense. I'm going to tell that story. You continue to tell the other story. So long story short, um, 
just having fun writing the publication that um, I think, you know, these really underserved and unspoken heroes, like some of the stories are super inspiring. It's like, you know, the tribulations they went through, like um, they quit their job. They like went all in on this thing. They avoided investors, got it to a few million in revenue. They're doing great now. Like that inspires me way more than just the constant like, hey, we raised money and then we raised more money and then we hired a bunch of people. Like, even though I'm a fan of those companies, um, I'm more of a fan of um, people just, you know, grinding it out towards profitability. From your opinion, how does a company know if it should raise venture capital or not? Besides a venture capitalist telling them, hey, we want to invest in your business, you're a good candidate. Like, what what are the businesses that, that need that venture capital from your perspective? Um, I think a lot of investors will definitely go straight to TAM. So total just what you need to be in a billion dollar market. Um, I think that's a, a dumb line of thinking because most of the most successful companies in Silicon Valley started in a low TAM market. Like, it makes no sense. It's just like, it's like every VC just wrote, re- read the same book, like, look for a large market, B2B SaaS, and they can sell to enterprise. Um, but there's countless companies that started in these really tiny markets. And, you know, now they're behemoths. They're the biggest companies in the world. Um, but to answer your question, in my opinion, I think venture capital makes sense when the market opportunity um, is there and the ambition and the drive of the entrepreneur is there. Because when you do take venture capital, you are signing up for a fiduciary duty to basically build a really big company. Like you were, you were looking to dis- completely disrupt the market. And it takes a lot out of you. So, you know, you are giving up a little bit of freedom. Um, you are giving up um, control in your business, um, 100%. Um, but if you believe in what you're doing um, enough and you believe that you, like, that's your personal ambition, um, that's when I think it makes sense. But I do not think it makes sense. If you're doing it to raise money, that's when it does not make sense because, you have to absolutely love what you're doing. If you don't love what you're doing, you don't have a purpose and you don't have a passion. And if you don't have a passion, you don't have a purpose, there's someone out there that does and they're just going to kick your butt in the market and you're going to, it's just not going to be good. Um, so if you do raise venture capital, um, my, my best tips, and I did this, um, I raised my first uh, financing was with Jeremy and Levine from uh, Bessemer. Um, He's a gangster. He he did like the, he found like Pinterest, Yelp, sits on the board of Shopify. Uh, did the Series B and LinkedIn. Um, very humble guy. Uh, he's so cool. we have like a monthly call, um, and we just jam on the business. And he's like the guy's like a billionaire or something like that. I don't know what he's. I I, I tell him he looks like a billionaire because he's. Got like the perfect camera and everything. He's awesome. Um, but I asked him questions. I just said like, hey, what if I never raise money again? Like, what if I want to sell for X amount? Like, I don't want to build a billion. He's, and all he said to me was, if you can promise me two things, work your hardest and be honest with me. That's all I ask. I believe in you. And I've known Jeremy for like six years. So we have a, a prior past. So 
um, that helped too. But um, uh, you know, personal drive and market opportunity is probably where where I go. And also, one thing about market opportunity is, um, I always say as an entrepreneur, you want to make a bet on a non-obvious market opportunity today that will become obvious over time. And so with microquire, that's kind of what I felt I did. It wasn't obvious at first. I literally, I keep this journal where I talk about, you know, wins for the month, goals for next month, things I'm concerned about. Uh, it's not, if Chris, if you found that my journal I wouldn't be like, hey, hey, like diary, like how, you know, it's, it's, it's just basically, you know, clip notes of the month. And I literally wrote like, hey, this startup's like kind of crazy, but um, at least it looks cool because the website has animations and stuff. I kind of overdid that. Um, but I just believed in it. I just felt it needed to exist for founders. And so I built it. So when I say market opportunity, I mean your belief in the market opportunity because some market opportunities are really, really obvious. Like remote work, um, I'd stay away from stuff like that just because it's 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 so obvious now. The competition is so fierce. Um, look for opportunities that are not obvious today, but will become obvious over time. Because, um, <laughs> let me ask you a question: What do you think the number one uh, reason for startup success is? You had to just guess. Uh, an amazing funding, founder, business model, amazing team. Like a t- besides, like it's the people. Time. There's a really timing. good TED talk. Market timing. There's a really good TED talk um, where this professor um, conducted a research report to figure out, you know, why are some companies like outrageously successful and why some aren't. Like business apps is a market timing play. I got so lucky with that business. Oh my gosh! Like I was like I didn't I didn't have any like experience at all and like but the market demand was so intense, we were able to make it work. Um, but another great example would be there was countless other websites that tried to do what YouTube did, but it wasn't until Adobe Flash came around and really helped reduce the size of um, video files that they were able to you know, really attract. And there's a number of different, like Uber, mobile phone came out, um, market timing. So sometimes you just get lucky. Why did you choose to build in public? What does that mean to you? And what have been the positives and maybe some of the negatives of doing it? So I, I can't, candidly, I didn't choose to do it. I just thought it was cool to share on Twitter. I didn't know it was a thing. I, like I kind of stepped out of like the whole Twitterverse thing for a minute. I, I was never really active on Twitter till about a year ago. Um, and then I was like, oh, there's a lot of, people sharing their revenue and i was like i'll play it i'm down let's hang out <laughs> so that was honestly that's just, that was a thought there was no strategy behind it um uh the benefits um i think it, it lets people get to know you on their terms consistently you know you can cons- and, it, and it's fun i actually really enjoy bringing people along for the ride because you know i get emails that say it's inspiring that like you're killing it and that kind of motivates me to push harder and you know uh downsides you know there's always haters like some people like if you throw up just like with any form of success you know some 
sometimes people are like, oh, if you share some like a revenue graph, you're bragging. And I'm just like, what? Like, who cares? Dude? Who cares? Like, what? <laughs> like, why does that bother you? Um, so I'd say that's the only that's a downside. It doesn't bother me whatsoever because I obviously just shared a revenue graph today. Um, but downsides, I mean, if you're raising venture capital, you got to hold that stuff really tight. So if I start going really silent on like sharing, you know, I'm looking to raise capital. You always talk about, you know, building a fun company. You even said that, um, your former company you thought was the most fun business. How do you build a fun company? What does fun mean? I think you need to really personally care about the people you work with. And I've always had the philosophy that if you're going to build a company, like if I have to show up every day, like I like to goof around. I'm I'm not the most serious guy. I don't ever want to be like, I just am who I am. And I, I love to laugh. Um, I love positive people. And that's who I try to surround myself with. And so when it comes to building, you know, a fun company, it really starts with, um, you know, me, like being like chief culture officer. So like helping people get to know each other, kind of like at a wedding, like where you're like, like, Hey, have you met Steve? Like you should talk to, you know, um, this person, like you kind of commingle everybody. Um, but at business apps, we used to do some pretty fun stuff. We had these like awards that we give away every quarter. They were called the banana awards. It was like a plastic banana. And if you got three of them, you'd get a plane flight to anywhere in the world. Um, and then we'd have company outings. We went to, um, I don't know what those horse races are in San Diego, but we went to that one time. Um, we had like beer Olympics at my office one time. Um, we were all young. So this is what happens when like a 26 year old, like is running like a, a tech company. Um, we would do like, escape rooms and stuff like that like we just tried to have fun we used to have a wheel that we'd spin um like every uh friday uh and we'd bet on the winner like you'd have everyone everyone in the company's name and then you'd bet on who you think it's gonna land on and so whoever like won that everyone had to pay them a dollar um there's a number of fun things but i think you know i i always try to just let my team know like I do personally care about them and I want them to be happy because the happier they are the harder they'll work and the better work they'll do and you know I want them to feel safe I want them to feel like they can take risks and it's okay to make mistakes and basically just try to be the boss I would want to have like if I got to work here too I don't want to be like an asshole and like hey why isn't this done it's like hey how can I help you get this done like I have three questions during my one-on-ones. It's what are you working on? How's it going? And then the last question is how, how can I help? And the, the meeting is also optional where it's your meeting, not mine. You don't need to, I don't need, you don't need to update me on anything. Um, we have other ways to like communicate, like where we say what we're doing every day in Slack and stuff like that. Um, but the meeting is a chance for me to help you with your goals. So, um, I try to motivate people in two ways. One is just, you know, um, intrinsically, which is, um, you know, when you feel like you're doing a good job, you're really happy at work. No one likes to be in a job where they feel like they're doing terrible. And then extrin extrinsically, which would be, you know, more like 
um, you know, positive public feedback um, and rewards, bonuses, that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's one of my, my key things is if I can't, you know, laugh with my team, something's off and, you know, I I don't know how your other companies were. I think I've read that this company is fully remote. You, I mean, you're working from home right now. You know, I'm in a totally different world. I've, we've been in the office for a long time and we're kind of an office company, but how do you keep all that fun and culture and getting people to care about each other done when they don't really see each other in person? Is it harder? Uh, it, it's definitely harder. So one thing that we did, um, I only hired people I previously worked with. So we have a few newcomers, um, but initially I only hired, like I, I hired my former VP of product, VP of engineering, my four, former CFO, um, former VP of marketing, uh, former creative director, um, my head of content, basically my whole crew, like everyone. I was like, hey, let's go. You guys want to like do it? go for another rodeo and everyone was like yeah hell yeah um because we loved working together we had so much fun you know what you're getting you know how to communicate so it really saves you like six months of that sort of feeling each other out like posturing um like we're very direct with each other very honest with each other um give each other great feedback um and then yeah in terms of remote um I like being on the field with my team. I'm not gonna lie. You know, I like I like the energy. I like rallying everybody up. Um, like a business app, I just walk around the office and like give people high fives and like, what'd you do over the weekend, man? Like, I don't know. Like, I really wanted to know. Like, what'd you do? Like, hey, what's up? Uh, and you get less of that with remote work. So we have uh, meetings like uh, in uh, 20 minutes. I have a meeting with my team where we just kind of. Uh, the day go anybody have anything funny to talk about uh the meetings are really really loose um sometimes we kind of drill in on someone's smoothies or something funny like that um that actually really happened we were like my friend my vp product told me like he had a smoothie for breakfast and we we're like what color was it was it thick you know we just we just tr- we just try to you know not take ourselves too seriously basically that's cool. All right. Three more quick personal ones, and then we'll get back at it. This isn't a typical question, but it came up yesterday. Is a hot dog a sandwich? You know, technically it, it is a sandwich. It, it's two pieces of bread with meat in the middle. I I I I I gotta go with this. It's a sandwich. Okay. And I probably uh, just what? lost like 10,000 10, fans or followers or whatever for saying <laughs> that. So I, I apologize to all hot dog believers around the world. What's the, the best advice you've ever been given? Man, that one's stumping me because I've gotten so much good advice. I want to like really, really give one. I'm going to go with just advice I would give people is um, like, just don't worry about what people think about you because people are way more concerned about what other people think about them. So just do your thing. Um, be humble, be respectful, um, be kind, um, just be a good person. Um, and always 
always have a positive attitude. Like with every dark night comes, you know, a brighter day. Um, as a, as a, as a Tupac quote. Um, but, um, that, that would probably be the best advice summarized through multiple people. Okay. Just positivity. Like, like the power of positivity, like, you know, that feeling after you laugh really, really hard and how good it feels. Yeah. Like, like that should be your day. That should be your goal every day. Like literally like any of the day, like just cracking up in some way or another. And it's not always going to happen, but, um, I do some weird stuff where I like listen to stand up comedy in the morning. Like I, I love to laugh. Um, and I laugh very easily. Um, but I think, I think laughter is what bonds people together and what really brings, um, you know, teams together. So, um, I'd say, you know, another piece of advice is encourage your team to laugh, encourage them to have fun um, and vocalize like, you know, we got to we have a lot of work to do, but we can make this fun because if you make it fun, it becomes easier when you're having fun, make better decisions. When you're having when you're making better decisions, your startup usually grows faster. All right, man, how can people find you or micro acquire? Andrew at microquire.com. Feel free to shoot me an email. Um, happy to help. And then uh, uh, probably Twitter. Uh, Agazdecki at Twitter. Okay. All right, dude. This was awesome. Thank you uh, so much again. This was great. Yeah. You're the man, Chris. I appreciate you having me on here. And um, hey, huge respect for just the empire you built. Like, I- I'm a fan. I'm a fan. Right back at you, man. We're, we're fanboys. Hey, everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating, or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Ford Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.